On this episode of the Big O Podcast, I'm joined by UFC play-by-play commentator and Boston sports fan, John Anik. We talk about the hours of preparation that go into a UFC event, my top three most memorable UFC moments, the protocols for Fight Island in Abu Dhabi, and how making a tattoo bet for UFC 196 landed him in some hot water with his boss. This is the Big O Podcast. John Jenks, uh, thanks for joining me on uh, a special Canada Day episode of the Big O Podcast. How are you doing? That's right. It is Canada Day. That's How about right. that? I'm honored. I mean, not that not that I was your like signature Canada Day <laughs> featured guest, but we'll take it. Listen, I'm uh, I'm happy to have you. I'm happy to see the attire that you are wearing right now. Big uh, New England Patriots fan myself, and I see the TB12 hat in the background. Oh, how about that? I should probably turn that around now that he's a Buccaneer, but we'll leave it. It's okay. You know what? Uh, we're we're going to support the guy who who made us one of the best franchises in sports history. Wish him the best, but not too much success if it comes right. at the cost of our uh, of our Patriots. Right. Now, you are from uh, Massachusetts. Am I correct? Yeah. So I lived in Massachusetts the first 30 years of my life. I moved to Connecticut in 2008 uh, when I started working full time for ESPN. So born and raised in Massachusetts. So uh, wow. no bandwagon jumping. From- <laughs> that, that, that's right. So it's Patriots, Patriots and Red Sox till I die. Correct. Oh, yeah. And Bruins and Celtics. And uh, there's no allegiance. I do think as you get older, you align with professional athletes and you right. feel good for certain athletes that maybe aren't on your team's. But for the most part, for me, it's whoever is in New England is the team that I'm going to be supporting. You know, I'm not rooting for. I hope Brady does well. I hope he doesn't get hurt. But if you think I'm rooting for the Buccaneers, <laughs> there is no effing way I'm rooting for that team. I hope they go three and a lot of losses. There we go. Well, I mean, it's a generational thing, right? You're from the generation of you pick your sports team and, and that's who you're going to follow. Whereas now with, with fantasy sports and, and kids just growing up loving players, the allegiance doesn't really matter. They just want their guy to go to a team and, and win right. a championship. They don't care where it is. Um, so this is a big week for you, not just because you're ramping up for uh, Fight Island, but you're also celebrating uh, a birthday soon. Any idea huh. what, what Riley, Tatum, and Hunter have in, in store for you? Well, I appreciate that, man. I don't know. We'll do something this Friday. It's interesting because in South Florida, they're closing all the beaches, right? right? And we're all trying to quarantine and socially distance and be responsible and all of that. But you're also balancing that with emotional trauma for your children, if I'm being candid. And my kids certainly have it fine, right? They're surviving. But getting them out to the beach at 8 o'clock in the morning (laughs) when there aren't a lot of people there uh, can really set up the foundation for a great day and mentally just get them in a better place. So we were going to go to the beach Friday morning super early at like 7.30, but the beaches are now closed because they're afraid of a lot of foot traffic. So we'll figure something out. Um, but uh, yeah, just buckling up for Fight Island and getting ready for the shows, as you well know, because I can tell you're a student of the game. There's so much prep that goes into a singular singular one of these live events, and I'm doing the Saturday and then the Wednesday. So right. I've been, you know, printing up bios all day <laughs> and uh, just getting myself in a position to succeed, so that when I hit that airplane, I'm ready to maximize the prep time. Now, do you hit the same sort of cue card uh, preparation that we see Bruce Buffer does with the color quoted, coded, and so he knows his tone and pitch? Or are you just like a, a Microsoft Word guy, print it out and, and, and spill it out? 
in my second life, I'm going to come back as Bruce Buffer because it's literally <laughs> one one hundredth of the work. You know, right. with respect to my boy, Bruce Buffer, it takes him 20 minutes or an hour to do his cards. No, my fighter cards. I have a fighter card library behind me of almost right. 5000 fighters and I handwrite my cards. I'm a little bit old school. Certainly, okay. if there were a fire in my house, I'd be in real trouble because nothing's backed <laughs> up. Sure. It's not digital. But that's my recipe for success. And I think if it was digitized, it would be easy because I would just right. make a few amendments on each fighter card and then I would go do the show, maybe watch some film. But this way, it forces me to study like right. I'm back in college where I'm literally having to handwrite a new fighter card. So I take a, a fighter bio. You can tell I'm passionate about this, but I oh, take sure. a fighter bio and yeah. I, I handwrite the whole thing. Everything that's important on there, I, I force myself to handwrite. So I'm essentially writing out a guy's UFC schedule, all sorts of different things. I add to the notes, to those notes during fight week and it's like flashcards. That's how I study so that by the time I arrive, not only do I have an open book test and all my notes in front of me, but a lot of that stuff at that point is committed to memory. Now, I'd be remiss not to mention the newest edition, or at least, I mean, it doesn't look like it's the new edition anymore, but certainly made an appearance on Saturday night, the glorious mustache. What inspired that thing of beauty? So I don't know if you or your viewers can see that I have a, you know, a slight mustache right yes. now or not, but bro, like I grow a beard in like 48 hours. So oh, for wow. me, I didn't really think anything of it. You know, I oftentimes will have just a straight mustache at home and then right. I wake up the next day and I got a beard. You know, I right. mean, that's literally how fast it grows. So for me, oftentimes when I'm hanging around, I do have the mustache and I think it was a little bit longer on the telecast. So people noticed it. Uh, but now it's like I almost feel like I got to got to bring the mustache <laughs> to fight island and make it even more pronounced but uh my dad always had a mustache it wasn't a big deal in the 1980s it seems in the right. 2020s it's a little bit of a bigger deal but uh as far as i'm sitting here today with julian ortiz i can tell you the mustache is here to stay oh you even got the pronunciation right i always get people who butcher my last name so i appreciate uh, i appreciate that now as i mentioned before uh we're knocking on the door of fight island uh, what briefings have you received so far in preparation of your time flying to yas island and in abu dhabi so at this point i pretty much know what the protocol is going to be i'll try to set it up as efficiently as possible for you i'm flying to vegas on sunday I'll quarantine in my room there for 36 hours. I will take a COVID test, obviously, when I get to Las Vegas. As long as I'm negative, I'll get on a charter flight. I will fly to Abu Dhabi. I will take a test as soon as I get to the airport, when I get to my hotel room as well. Quarantine thereafter to make sure that I'm clean. And for a play-by-play -play guy, this is not at all the worst-case scenario because right. – all I do is prep pretty much. I might go out to dinner one time in a non-global pandemic climate, but for the most part, I'm fucking sitting in my room prepping all goddamn day anyway. Yeah. So for me, the quarantine is nothing. And I've never felt more prepared uh, than I did for last weekend's show because I was without children in a hotel room in Vegas, essentially quarantined. Right. I don't even remember how to watch TV anymore. There's nothing to do but prep. <laughs> so for me, uh, it's not really a big deal. I just think for all of us, we're just hoping that we stay healthy because if we don't stay healthy, not only can we not do the shows, but we might end up stuck in the Middle East for a month. So uh, we're just trying to take care of all the personal protective stuff that we can on our end to make sure that we're healthy enough to do the job. Right. And, and that was a, another thing I was going to ask you is, you know, when fighters come to Vegas uh, to fight at the Apex Performance Arena and they test positive and we've seen corner men or even fighters test positive. It's a little bit different when you're in your own country. But if you test positive and you're over there, like you said, up to a month, how, how are they going to be expected to to stay there for all of that time? 
it's a great question. You know, my good friend, my former jiu-jitsu coach, Pahumpa from American Top Team, yep. tested positive as MMA Junkie and others reported. And he was not able to corner Luis Pena. And now he's quarantined in Vegas for 14 days. And as long Crazy. as he gets healthy, he'll fly to Abu Dhabi to corner Alessandre oh, okay. Pantoja. He'll miss Amanda Hibas's fight. But that's if he's healthy. So for me, right. I don't know if it'll be 14 days or 30 days, but I'd imagine if I go to Abu Dhabi and I am positive, I'm not just going to be having a red carpet rolled out for me <laughs> to get back to the United States of America to go see my children. So that's sort of my informed speculation that there's going to be some sort of extended quarantine if any of us do test positive. The good news is that the UFC is the best in the business. And right. if you... If you take that as somebody who gets a check from the promotion, so be it. But look <laughs> at the execution so far, right? Sure. Everybody who gets on that charter, Julian, is going to be negative. So I'm pretty confident in the processes that have been laid out. And uh, it's up to me to handle my own business at the Miami airport when I'm not being, you know, taken care of by the U.S. Right. Well, we saw Dan Hooker return to New Zealand after his fight this past weekend against Dustin Poirier. And we you know, he has to self-quarantine for 14 days because of that international travel. As a parent yourself, you know, b being so close to your child, yet so far not being able to hold them, kiss them, you know, sort of at a distance, you're going to Fight Island for at least two weeks. And then you have to quarantine for another two weeks after that because you're making the international trip. How are you preparing yourself for that aspect of your work? So earlier we were talking about all the protocols and I told you what I do know. What I yeah. don't know is exactly what happens when I return to Miami, Florida after the trip to Abu Dhabi. That right. I can't tell you, right? Obviously in New Zealand, Dan Hooker has a mandatory 14-day quarantine. And if that was the case in the United States, I don't believe it is, right? But okay. if that is the case, then I think in the U.S. it's up to the individual to self-monitor, whereas it appears right. as though Dan Hooker is either just a damn good citizen <laughs> or he's being monitored, monitored right. by the New Zealand government. And New Zealand was way ahead of all of this and For was sure, very yeah. restrictive, as you know, in terms of the stuff that Dan Hooker and his teammates are having to do. So I don't know what the quarantine is going to be like when I get back. I will tell you, though, that I can empathize with him a little bit because even coming back from Las Vegas, Julian, a few days ago, yeah. I go mask on in the house for like 48 hours. I saw and I that. hug my children. And that's my wife's decision. And, and that's fine. Um, it's hard with my baby boy because he just can't deal with the mask and all yeah. of that. But after 48 hours, which probably sounds like an arbitrary number to some. As long as I'm not symptomatic, the mask comes off and I'm able to hug and kiss my children. So we deal with it a little bit, but I'm not six feet away. I'm actually under the same roof with my kids, right. which makes the uh, the transition back a little bit easier. But I feel for Dan, you're all fucking beat up and you can't see you hug your daughter. You know? For sure. I mean, and Canada has a very similar thing. Canada has a two-week quarantine for any international flight. Anytime you're coming back to Canada, it's, it's two weeks right now so i'm i'm assuming the u.s especially a place like florida not to right. to bash on florida but right I mean, right they, easy target florida yeah yeah they just i mean them arizona they just haven't had the best of luck with they reopened early and it's looking like it maybe was done in a little bit of haste um but that being said listen you'll follow whatever protocol it is and yeah I, I mean, I have two young girls as well, so I imagine just how hard it would be to, to not be able to hug and kiss them and, and be under the same roof. Um, going back to the fight card from this past weekend, I want to also bring up Mike Perry. Now, yeah. Mike Perry seemed to bring a very different approach to his fight against Mickey Gall by only having his girlfriend corner him. And after winning, alluded to some of the reasoning for not having coaches. He talked about... Um, you know, the them telling him something while he's there, 
in the middle of the fight and he doesn't really respond well to that. What are your thoughts on his performance for a guy who didn't have a professional team in his corner? Well, his performance was spectacular. I mean, there is certainly a fight IQ in there that he doesn't get a lot of credit for. I do think he's a better grappler than people want to give him credit for. He is an intelligent striker, even though he would prefer to brawl. Uh, he moves his feet well. He has power. He's been very competitive against guys in the top 15, Jeff Neal notwithstanding, but he went toe-to-toe with Vicente Luque in Uruguay in a fight that many people thought he won. So I have a lot of respect and belief in the athlete and the ability. And I do think he really downplayed the conditioning for everybody, right? Like, for sure. Oh, you know, because this is a guy who's had some treacherous weight cuts, right? Because I've been there at times where he has had nothing in the fighter meeting. And even last December when he fought Jeff Neal, he just was bitter and sad in our fighter meeting. He didn't seem at all happy with his now ex-wife. And then right. juxtaposed against his demeanor and disposition this time around kid was happier than ever right for sure and yeah. was in tremendous shape obviously as you saw looked like he could have gone five rounds so i'm really happy for mike i do think you will see him align with if not a world-class camp world-class coaches right for sure it maybe will charge him five percent instead of 10 15 or 20 percent <laughs> you know um but i go way back with the guy you know i've been there for most of his ufc career i remember i remember when i was voicing ea sports ufc3 in new york city i ran into him on the subway and we shared a moment oh, wow. then so I really like the dude, and uh, I'm happy for his success. And uh, there's a whole Mickey Gall side to this because I think he's going to really have to regroup. But uh, right. I'm happy for Platinum, and uh, I think he's almost assuredly guaranteed himself a fight against either somebody in that top 15 or a big name that doesn't have a number. So uh, I'm happy, and uh, I hope he can uh, continue to ascend. Another memorable moment from Mike Perry was that post-fight interview with you. Now, watching that live, it was... It was a thing of beauty because it really was like multifaceted. He talked about it almost looked like he was getting emotional at times when he talked sort of about his like finances and what he wants to do and the, and the tax man. I mean, what's going through your mind as you began to talk to him and he started going into his financial situation and then, you know, obviously made for an entertaining clip. But he made some really good points that a lot of MMA fighters outside of maybe yeah. the top five money makers are truly facing when it comes to their careers or as Dana White said, opportunities as a UFC fighter. So you got to be a good listener, especially when you're doing live TV. And oftentimes when I'm just calling a fight and my broadcast partners are talking, I have somebody in my ear. I have a promo card ready to go. And so I'm not always able to listen to Dom and Mike as to what they're saying, right? right. Because I have other things as I try to traffic cop the broadcast. But when I'm doing a post-fight interview, you have to listen and my producers obviously laid out, which means they didn't say anything in my ear and they were letting it go. And I was just yeah. listening to the man. Yeah. I mean, I'm just a fan <laughs> of the guy. And I do think yeah. he makes a lot of salient points. You know, when I was 20 years old, I didn't quite understand that if I received at the time $50 to write a story for the Metro West Daily News, that eventually right. I had to pay $17 of that back, you know. Right. And I, I think a lot of us as young men had that realization. So I think he put it in a, in a comedic way that was relatable and certainly he maximized the platform as he so often does. But for me in that moment, uh, it's the fighter's moment. And uh, obviously, I think as many people saw, what I should have done was just to shut up. And that's what I did. And uh, <laughs> obviously, he's got plenty to say. He don't need me. Yeah, listen, Mike never shies away from from a microphone. But you know what? Like, like I said, I thought he brought up a lot of good points, especially considering the climate that we're in right now that the that the UFC is facing with their fighters like John Jones and Jorge Masvidal. I mean, even Conor McGregor, these guys sitting out because 
they're not getting paid what they believe is their worth. And from a, as an MMA fan, I mean, that's hard to argue with. Those are, you know, five of maybe the top 10 guys who could bring in a, a, a bunch of money. And, and to Mike's credit, he didn't say he wants to get paid like that. But you would have to think maybe as an organization who has done really well to promote their fighters, maybe to take a page out of maybe the NFL or the NBA that have started to put into place uh, different things when new people come to the organization, new athletes come in, because they're only like, you know, 18, 19, sometimes 20, 21, where they get to meet with financial advisors who really understand what's happening with their finances so they don't get put in a position like Mike Perry does and have to get pay back all of this money because, as he said, he just wants to while out. Right, right. It's a tricky thing, and I think you hit on a lot of good points, and I do believe having some sort of financial advisor for these fighters would be a huge step in the right direction. I wonder if at the Athletes' Summit, though, Julian, a few years ago, I'd imagine right. they had some financial people speaking to these athletes. But, right, having somebody that they can yeah. reach out directly to um, – especially when they're navigating some of those situations and not feel like they're having to give this FA 10% of everything right. that they work so hard for in addition to give it a manager. And so sure. I understand it's a tricky navigation, but I do think it's hard for a lot of us fans, even though you and I are probably from different generations to right. realize that this sport really is still in its relative infancy. And sure. there are a lot of athletes on this roster, maybe the bottom half of the roster uh, that are being paid more than what type of money they bring in the promotion. And maybe there's some yeah. athletes that are paying being paid less than than their value to the promotion, right? So hopefully there's a middle ground there, but we're not at the NBA and NFL level yet, right? It's right. like I'm not getting paid like the lead guy for the NFL. You could be <laughs> damn sure, you know what I mean? So yeah. I do believe there's a growth pattern, and uh, I I'm hopeful that you know when we're talking in 2040, uh, you know, a guy like Dustin Poirier, right? Right absolute minimum should be making a million bucks to show, right? I no think doubt. we can all agree on that in 2020, right? Yep. Um, but that's just not a reality of our sport right now. But I do believe we will get there. And I don't know if that means that collectively the fighters need to unionize. I don't know what the best solution is. Right. But I do know that we're moving in the right direction. And a lot of these guys, the top 50, are, are, are doing really well, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, you alluded to Dustin Poirier, so I want to take it there next. What did you think of, what was the biggest takeaways from his matchup with Dan Hooker on, on Saturday night? Oh, man. So, I love Hooker. I do believe that he has a championship ceiling. I think there was a lot of value for him in these 25 minutes. But I do think maybe he was biting off a little bit more than he could chew. Right. As we mentioned in New Zealand, it was so restrictive for so long in terms of the training. He had an absolute war with Paul Felder in February and was even going to turn it around for May 16th, which seemed Jeez. insane to a lot of people. Yeah. When Dan Hooker lost to Edson Barboza, Julian, his coaches had to demand that he take eight months off and it was the best thing for him. Right. Right. I mean, look what he was able to do when he returned. So I felt like hooker maybe be, was a little bit of a victim of a quick turn there. It was all heart from Dan hooker over the final 10 minutes, right? He oh, had nothing sure. left, especially the last seven minutes. It was just total exhaustion, all heart, just trying to survive. Poirier on the other side, I think he really stamped himself a hall of famer. I mean, this is yeah. a win that I think really bolsters an already unbelievable legacy when you look at two wins over Max Holloway and Gaethje and Eddie Alvarez and Anthony Pettis. I mean, just every big name that you would want is there. The winning percentage is there. Might be the best boxer in the UFC. Yeah. This was a historic lightweight fight in terms of the output and the accuracy on both sides. But for Poirier to throw 300 or so strikes and land 76% of them, it was a total clinic. Uh, we could talk about 
all the five tools for Poirier. If you want to do five minutes on his heart, right? Because right. Dustin says, like, I want it more. And when you see him nearly concussed at the end of round two and then look <laughs> yeah. like a guy who could go 10 five-minute rounds, it's like, yeah, you know what? Maybe he does want it more than everybody else, you yeah. know? And Hooker wants it as bad as anyone, right? Hooker's <laughs> yeah. got that championship hunger. But Poirier is a truly special fighter. He's a Hall of Famer. And uh, I just think history is going to look back pretty fondly on everything that, that Poirier has been able to accomplish. And, uh, and this win is, you know, one in a long line of, of Hall of Fame type wins for him. And when fighters come off, you know, great matches like this and, and they're already towards the top of the heap, the one thing that they always say is that they have options for their next opponent. And very much so, Dustin falls into that category. Tony Ferguson, Conor McGregor. I mean, you could even make an argument after this performance that he could get the winner of Justin Habib in September. Where do you think Dustin ends up? And outside of the, the four names that I brought up, who would be another person that you could throw in there that, you know, you might see Dustin fight before he gets his title shot again? Well, I don't think Nate Diaz would necessarily be willing to sign on the dotted line again because right. that fight went away. I mean, Dustin was legitimately injured, but yeah. Nate Diaz respects Poirier enough to fight him, right? That's the thing about guys like Nate Diaz is that you got to earn the opportunity to fight a guy like that. He wanted to fight Masvidal because yeah. he was all the rage at that moment and he's a fighter's fighter and deserved it. So Nate Diaz would be the name that I would say. But the beauty of this thing for Dustin Poirier is that you had this hugely invasive hip surgery. They had to microfracture your femur. You took Jeez. nine months off. You come back. I know it sounds just yeah. devastating. <laughs> you come back. You win a five-round fight against a guy ranked number five. Now you can just sit around, wait for Khabib and Justin to finish their business in September or October. Khabib could have a rematch clause because he's 28-0 or whatever going right. into the fight. So it might be a while before he would get an undisputed lightweight championship fight. Didn't want to call out Tony Ferguson because he was on the wrong end of a brutal beating very recently. Yep. So I think, Dustin, you just sit back. You enjoy your daughter. Maybe you try to crank out a second kid. Let the ducks <laughs> fall where they may. Uh, and then you go from there. But all options are available to uh, to Dustin Poirier. But I really do think it's it's you can count on one hand the guy. Yeah. Short of a super fight, Julian, at welterweight yeah. that I'm not thinking about, it's probably going to be one of the names that we mentioned. So, I mean, perfect transition. You brought up Nate Diaz. So the next thing I want to talk about is this 209 area code tattoo. Now, once it was announced that Nate Diaz was going to be filling in for Rafael Dos Anjos uh, against Conor McGregor at UFC 196, you said that you thought Conor was going to win, and you gave your reasonings as to why, but you also went one step further and said, if Diaz wins, you'll get a 209 area code tattooed on the inside part of your forearm what made you so confident that connor was going to get the job done it wasn't that at all it wasn't that there was a <laughs> confidence in connor mcgregor it really is a byproduct of wanting to get a tattoo and never knowing what the <laughs> hell to get no i mean this is the true story so and you set up you set it up pretty well all things considered but so nick diaz was a big impetus for me getting into mixed okay. martial arts when i started covering it he was the guy that i told everybody to go watch if they wanted to get into the sport right, right. so I've always just sort of related to the Diaz brothers and I'm a numbers guy and I like their sort of 209 calling. Right. So, yes, I thought it was a huge ask for Nate Diaz, who was seemingly partying in Cabo yeah. to come to Vegas and fight Conor McGregor, who was in training camp and beat him. And so before the podcast that day, I went down, I talked to my wife. I said, I think this would be a sort of good radio bit for the podcast to do this tattoo bet. 
And she was like, you're fucking crazy. So I called <laughs> Kenny Florian and he was like, dude, you're fucking crazy. Um, but yeah, I back then I wasn't calling the fight. So right. I was a little bit more opinionated on the podcast in terms of what I thought the outcome would be. Um, but I thought it was a win win until it surfaced on Nate's radar during fight week, which I think right. upset my boss and. I felt like even though that was the most I ever did to help push a pay-per-view, right. there were a couple hours there where I thought my job was in jeopardy. So uh, I certainly learned my lesson. I will tell you, <laughs> we did another tattoo bet on the podcast when Ronda Rousey fought Betch yep. Cohea. I was going to get the Brazilian flag tattooed. Nobody paid attention to that one. Um, but uh, And, of course, I didn't get the tattoo because Ronda won. But right. it won't be the last tattoo bet that we do. It was a lot of fun. It's really fun to look back on. But I will say a couple hours that day where Nate seemed kind of pissed and my bosses weren't happy. Yeah. Uh, it was a low moment. And I'll, I'll, I will say, too, once <laughs> once it was on Nate's radar, I was getting the tattoo win or lose. So obviously right. it made a better story that he, he won the fight. But even if he had lost uh, out of respect, I was going to get the tattoo anyway. It's funny you brought up the Ronda Rousey, Beth Cohea thing, because that was actually going to be my follow up to this is what were you going to get tattooed? Because that was another, you know, famous, you know, win or yeah. lose the kind of bet you're going to have. Now, right. you brought up that you loved Nick Diaz, right? That you gave respect to the Diaz brothers. They're very instrumental in, in how this game has been changed. I mean, if you look at both those guys, they're not the type of fighters right now that need to fight to earn a living. They're doing so many other things. They fight because they love to do it, which is not necessarily what everyone in the game is doing right now. But after it caught wind to Nick that, you know, you picked Connor at the post-fight post-fight press conference he famously you know had some colorful words right. for you as to you know you better make sure that john right. anik gets that tattoo otherwise i'm gonna i'm gonna find him yeah did that did your relationship with nate change back to you know a, a place of respect or is he, does he still hold an animosity towards because he was pretty fired up no it, if anything it strengthened our bond oh, okay. you know he asked to see it when I saw him the oh. first time thereafter. So it's all love there. And okay, I will good. say, too, that if anybody goes and listens to the Anakin Florian podcast and seeks out that episode and yeah. hears what I had to say, right? Like even when my boss, Craig Borsari, called me upset, I said, please do me the benefit of going and listening to the audio yeah. where I said, man, this dude's incredible. If he beats Conor McGregor, I'm going to get the 209 tattoo. And you know what? I might get the goddamn tattoo anyway because he's right. just such a baller for taking this fight, you know? So it was really – it was sort of innocuous, and I think that it just – you know, people grabbed the headline and went and ran with it. Uh, and even though it brought attention to our show, that wasn't uh, my my desire that it would become like sort of a, a part of Fight Week, a bullet right. and, and part of the Fight Week narrative. Because, again, any play-by-play guy will tell you we're trying to go firmly under uh, the For radar. Sure. No, no doubt. I mean, and that's the thing, right? Clickbait is a, is a huge thing in, in, in today's thing, right? So they just say, oh, John Anik picks Nate Diaz without all the preamble beforehand. And right. I mean, like you said, parting uh, in Cabo, uh, Connor famously poking fun at the, you know, the dad bod and the squishiness of the belly. I mean, all signs sort of pointed to Connor being in better shape than Nate Diaz, but people forget Nate Diaz just for fun will train oh, for triathlons, yeah. right? right? He'll, he can, he's a guy who can come off the couch and still put a beating, take a beating, and still give you back some more. So um, I'm a big Conor McGregor fan, so yeah, I wasn't – it, it hurt to see, you know, Nate win, but, I mean, ultimately it was it was a good fight. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a disappointment. It definitely lived up to, to, to what it was supposed to be. Yep. Now, you mentioned earlier the role of the play-by-play -play commentator is definitely harder than your – 
your coworkers in the sense of you have someone in your ear, you have reads, commercial reads. You got to sort of be the, as you said, traffic cop when it comes to everything that's going on in the broadcast. You know, what is your prepa- uh, preparation like day of the fight when it comes to prelims, undercard, main card? At what point, like how much sleep are you getting the night before and how much day of preparation are you going through? So it's interesting that you're asking this right now because my call time for UFC 251 in Abu Dhabi is going to be 1 a.m. local time. Nice. So we've had all sorts of different experiences calling fights in the early a.m. in Australia. Right. But we've never had the first fight be at 3 a.m. local time, which is our reality in Abu Dhabi. So that will change things, meaning that I will sleep most of the day. And on that day, maybe I'll wake up and I'll go for a run, but there will be no fight prep happening before I get to the arena that day. When I do a show on the east coast of the United States or in Canada on the east side of that country, right? I don't go to the arena until 5 or 6 p.m. So even though from a show format standpoint, all of my scripts have been sent, I have probably six hours if I want to watch more film or read more articles. And that's a tremendous luxury, but that's not always my reality. So most of the hay is in the barn by the time I wake up. I try to sleep at least eight hours the night before the show. I always run four or five miles on fight day just to get my head in the right space. But uh, the historical component, the way it all went down uh, was as exciting a moment as we have had in that booth for sure. So the final one I want to bring up is my number one for like a multitude of reasons. Uh, Electric finish, zero to 100 literally in seconds. And the the best part for me is you're not even able to finish the official sponsor of the fight clock before it was over. And that's Jorge Masvidal's flying knee knockout of Ben Askren. It's one of probably I would say in the ESPN days, the number one clip that they'll probably go to when it comes to that kind of thing. It wasn't too violent. The result was definitely violent. Right. But, you know, just chassing to the side, flying knee knockouts. What was going through your mind as you're trying to get out that Modelo is the official sponsor of the fight clock, and then all of a sudden it's over? I looked up with a millisecond to spare (laughs) and was able to see the knee land flush. But this is probably the one that I'm most proud of because you're not expectant that something like that is going to happen. And yet you're still charged with providing a call that is going to withstand the test of time. And I don't just hit a button with my shtick at the end of the fight. Right. I am trying to make all of these calls organic. So, oh, Game bread was sort of like game (laughs) over for me, but Askren was stiff as a board. I mean, seeing a human being stiffen up like that, and that was close to right in front of us, too. I mean, it was across the octagon, but that felt very visceral, and thankfully, I think our call sort of dovetailed with the moment. But that, I mean, it's incredible. I don't even know how to put it in words to you, Julian. I did Bellator season one, so I go way back with Jorge Masvidal. I live in South Florida, so I know what he means to Miami and the 305, and all of us down here just consider him the superstar of superstars so for it to be him uh was just an incredible moment uh and again on the other side i fought for years with joe silva as rogan did to try to get ben Askren in the ufc so it was a little bit sad as far as that was concerned but hey that was an undefeated fighter right uh just so many layers to it but uh game bread man game over man one of so one of my favorite parts about the that that call was the fact that you know, you're describing what's going on. You're giving the fight clock, and then, you, like you said, you get that millisecond to sort of respond, and then you're giving the what just happened. 
Joe just says, wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's all he's saying. And then Paul Felder is jaw to the floor. He doesn't right. even actually get right. a whole, a, a right. single word in yeah. during the entire fight. I mean, it's probably one of the most memorable things that I'll ever remember. Is it in your top five memories oh, yeah. of calling any fights for the UFC? Yeah, and you're jogging my memory even bringing up Kevin Lee and Gregor Gillespie because oftentimes I'll be asked, oh, what's your favorite call? And right. it's hard to just think of one in the moment. You know, Edson yeah. Barboza knocking out Benil Daryush, I think, is yeah. one that comes to mind for me or, or Marlon Marais against Jimmy Rivera where all I had to say was Marlon Marais by knockout, right? Yeah. Sometimes that's all you need to say. But yeah, the game bread one is up there. And, uh, you know, part of the reason why Felder might be quiet or Rogan might just say, wow, is because ultimately there is a little bit of a direct when the fight ends right. they're supposed to let me cap it for three or four seconds and then chime in more of a traditional american football role where the play-by-play right. calls the action and then the analyst chimes in with the why and the how so i think part of the reason why felder isn't saying anything is because he's giving me that real <laughs> estate graciously right uh to call the end of the fight but uh definitely top five if not number one for me you know awesome and so we mentioned this at the earlier part of the of this episode, and we talked about you know Dana White's role really in trying to get something restarted when the world was shutting down, and got a lot of criticism not just from some fighters, but from other organizations. I mean, he's had his famous beef with Bob Arum and Oscar De La Hoya, but I mean the proof is in the pudding. He's been able to put on, I believe. I think I read somewhere, in, it might have been your Instagram post actually today, 20% of the year's live schedule by May 9th has already been done. He has been able to secure locations. He's been able to get fights going and really make fights as entertaining as possible by getting big names. Maybe a few more big names on the same car than he would have normally done it, try to sprinkle it out because I'm sure he knows in the back of his mind that there's no guarantee that he's going to be able to have fights next week or the week after. So you might as well get your product the best it can be and then put it out there. What can you say about the job that that Dana White has really done for both the organization and giving the fighters an opportunity during this time? Well, I appreciate the chance to talk about it because I don't know that it can be overstated how impressive it is that we've been able to do from May 9th to July 27th. Forget what happened in January and Mm -hmm. February and early March. From May 9th to June 27th, we've done eight live events. Yeah. That's 20% of our live event schedule for the whole Crazy. year. And yeah, there have been a few positive tests here and there, but the protocols have been great. And as yeah. I said at the outset, and I have more respect for the virus than probably any one of my coworkers, if I'm right. being candid, right? But I said at the outset that even though this is a climate unforeseen before with this global pandemic. The UFC is a well-oiled machine that has to deal with something everywhere we go, whether we're going to Brazil at a time where it's not safe or fighters are missing weight and we're losing our main event three hours before the fight, right? There are all sorts of different things, obstacles, challenges that the UFC has had to deal with over the years. So I felt like back in March when shit hit the fan that, well, if any sports organization was going to figure out a way to do live events in this climate, it's probably the UFC because they have so many things to deal with on a week-to-week basis that maybe the NBA is not dealing with. So I would encourage the other sport, sports leagues to take a long, hard look at what the UFC is doing because uh, I know they are dealing with different things and maybe in yeah. some cases poor athletes or athletes in closer proximity. They have teams, which we don't in theory, uh, even right. though I could dispute that a little bit with corner men and women. <laughs> but sure. we've executed largely without a hitch, and uh, I just – 
a lot of it is just about being bullish and being willing to fail. And a lot of these organizations were so fearful of failure that uh, they didn't start thinking about action. And that passivity has delayed them immeasurably. Well, it's interesting because um, this morning it was announced. It's rumored to almost be finalized. But you said you're a Bruins fan. And I'm, I'm interested to get your opinion on this, that the NHL is going to restart with two hub cities for games. And it turns out both of those cities are actually in Canada. As of right now, it stands that it's going to be Toronto, uh, Ontario, and Edmonton, Alberta. Wow. I mean, that's pretty big. And I, I mean, it's kind of understandable in the sense that the U.S., there are some states that are just having large spikes in numbers. And Canada, for the most part, has been has been pretty good when it comes to that. They have facilities here. What are you going to think watching your Bruins potentially go toe to toe with with my Toronto Maple Leafs at some point in the next, you know, you know, couple of months watching them in, you know, Canada, is it going to affect how you watch it? Or are you going to tune it in just because you want to see your team win? Like how's that? How's the NHL restart going to affect you specifically? Well, it's very interesting. I don't have as much time to watch as I did right. before, and I'm going to be in Abu Dhabi at least once, if not two or three more times in yes. theory the rest of the way this year. So I don't know how much I'll be able to actually watch, right. but I'm excited, right? I mean, the Bruins obviously were the only team to 100 points when the season was shut down, so yeah. they have a great chance to win the cup. I'm certainly glad that they didn't just give the President's Trophy winner at midseason yeah. the cup, right? I mean, For I'm sure. glad there's going to be a playoff. But I got to be honest with you. We were talking off air about getting older as a sports fan and how yep. maybe you root for athletes and allegiances. The Toronto Maple Leafs, right? It's, this yep. may sound crazy from a Boston Bruins fan, right? But like, <laughs> I would love to see the Leafs win a cup, right? Because wow. the Bruins went from 1972 to 2011 without winning yep. a cup. I feel like it's the hardest pro sports championship to win by far. I think for it's sure. so much harder to win the Stanley Cup than to win the Super Bowl, right? It really oh, is. for sure. Oh, with 100%. Three, three playoff games, right? Instead yeah. of got to play 25s, and they're all a game seven, right? So yeah. I have a lot of friends in Canada. I have a lot of support in Toronto, and I would love nothing more than to see the Maple Leafs hoist the cup. Not this year, necessarily. <laughs> it, yeah, uh, I mean, it's certainly going to be weird, you know, seeing the Bruins, you know, yeah. out there regularly. But I have no ill will. I mean, now, if you want to talk about the Habs, the Canadians, it's a whole different conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole different conversation from uh, from both sets of our teams. But yeah. I, I definitely don't know how Torontonians would feel seeing a Boston Bruins team hoist the Stanley Cup at Scotiabank right. Arena that might right. uh, that might hurt just a little too much considering the recent history that we've right. had with that. I No, and I totally have, with respect to that recent history, yeah. right? I mean, is there anything better if you're the Bruins than, uh, oh. than hoisting the Cup in Vancouver on road ice, you know? Right, no, most for I've, sure. Most I've ever paid for a sporting event ticket in my life wow. was, uh, was to see the Bruins and the Canucks in, I think it was game six in Boston before going back for... Uh, for game seven in Vancouver. But uh, yeah, no, nobody has more respect for the Stanley cup and how hard it is to win than, uh, than me. The Bruins own Canada. Now I know you're pressed with time, so I'm going to get you out of here real quick. Um, where can people find you on social media? Uh, it's John underscore Anik, J O N underscore A N I K and, and Anik Florian podcast.com. If you want the, uh, the podcast as well. Yeah. If you aren't a subscriber yet to the, the Anik and Florian podcast, it's absolutely phenomenal. Get on that available wherever you get your podcast. Thank you, John, for joining me today. It's my pleasure, man. And we got to have you on our show as well. I, I can tell you have a lot to offer and, uh, I wish you the best with the show and everything else on the two little girls, man. Awesome. Thank you, brother. I'm your host of the big old podcast, Julian Ortiz. Thank you for watching and listening. Bye, everybody.